0: There are lots of lousy businesses, and there's lots of wonderful businesses.
1: It's the art and science of money.
0: My job has been to try and figure out which is which.
1: It's Hi-Fi Radio from the Global News Radio Studios in Toronto. With Hi-Fi Portfolio Managers, here's Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle.
0: Welcome to Saturday Night, my good friends. Oh, it's such a pleasure to spend an hour with you each and every Saturday. And it used to be in the morning, now it's night and, well... I'm a bit more of a night owl. I have to admit, well, to a degree, I am. I do need my sleep. I do like my sleep. But uh, anyway, Saturday night, 7 p.m. Ah, so much fun. Show about money. Uh, My name is Wolfgang Klein, portfolio manager with Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. Uh, I always say at the beginning of the show, I'll say throughout the show, if you have any questions for me, WolfgangKlein.com. My partner Jack Hartle. I have him working away. He's a busy. Man, as we get set to reposition portfolios for 2021, I'm writing a note to clients. I'm saying I'm going to mark my words. Next year will not be like this year. I promise you. I really do. Uh, no, it's, it'll be a new year. And uh, Well, it's very important to, as a money manager uh, to make sure that you're in the right stuff at the right time. See, my mantra is always own quality assets always diversify Uh, you don't need to diversify per se by having too many positions have a nice concentrated portfolio of 50 positions which is what I do Always quality assets, with rising revenues, strong balance sheets, great brands. All those are my tenants, and and I will never waver from those tenants. But every now and then, you want to get into the sectors that are working best, so I buy the best names in those sectors. And I'm very fortunate to be a a professional money manager, that I have access to some of the smartest minds on Bay Street and Wall Street. Later in the show, our chief strategist, uh, Tony Dwyer, is going to join us, but to kick off the concert is Saturday night. We're going to have a concert of money. Um, Denise Chisholm, she's a sector strategist with Fidelity Investments. Uh, I believe Fidelity is one of the world's best money management shops, bar none. Jack and I use Fidelity uh, throughout mandates. They do an amazing job uh, helping us add value. Uh, Denise uh, Chisholm, I cannot thank you enough for taking time uh, this evening uh, to to the hi-fi listener um so you're a sector strategist very very helpful uh, we're heading into 2021 so i'm going to turn the table to you um share with us uh, your call for next year and what sectors we want to be in and what sectors we want to be out of
2: mm-hmm. no thank you so much for having me i love talking about sectors and markets overall so i'm really happy to be here and i am i work very closely with tony dwyer so we will see If he echoes some of my thoughts next, Um, I think as we approach 2021 as a sector strategist, what I really like to do, I have a pretty unique process in that I use historical probability analysis on both fundamental and macroeconomic data. And I do get the pushback that it's always different this time. And I think that that's always right. It is different. But there are a lot of lessons that we can actually learn from studying historical data and seeing when things are predictive. So as we approach 2021, I think one of the most significant indicators over the course of this year and into next year is going to be and it has been credit spreads. So if you look at high yield spreads, they've now narrowed all the way back to their bottom quartile of history. Obviously, that's a usual, a typical correlation to lower levels of default going forward. If we are in the situation that the vaccine makes possible a steadier acceleration in GDP and jobs, there's very little odds historically that credit spreads will re-widen. So as we enter 2021, we might be in a very sweet spot for equities where you're already in the bottom quartile of credit spreads and credit spreads are still narrowing. This is not typically a contra indicator and one you wanna bet against. It's usually where you have the highest returns, not only in equities relative to history, where you have an average of 20% returns with very high odds over 90, but it's usually the sweet spot for equities relative to other asset classes, like commodities or other types of bonds.
0: I want to pipe in here for Zach, Denise, and again, you're brilliant. Absolutely. I want to try to do more listening. Part of, my, part of what I'm doing with this show each and every week is I'm doing my job. I'm learning, and I'm asking questions by, uh, to very, very smart people. Um, again, to help the audience out of this Saturday night, perhaps we a got cocktail or two under way and why not? It's Saturday night and they're at home uh, social distancing and being good citizens. Um, but credit spread, can, can you speak, uh, did, well, I'll help the audience out. Number one, when, when Denise speaks about credit spread, she's speaking about What a company or what an individual can borrow money in excess to what the government can borrow money for. So it's called a spread where government is the safest um, borrower on the planet. And so if you were to um, lend money to the government, you're going to receive the safest um, uh, asset and you're going to receive the smallest return. If you go down then the quality spectrum into um, companies, uh, you start with AAA rated companies, they have a slight spread for their debt service over governments and if you go to then riskier companies the spread widens and then we call about we speak about junk bonds which are uh, and default companies where spreads are even wider so what denise is saying is companies can borrow money because the cost for them to borrow is not that much greater than government money is readily available and that means if they can borrow for cheap their stock price will do well is that a decent synopsis for you denise
2: that is a great translation. Thank you. I often need a Denise translator. So you, you <laughs> fit in perfectly.
0: <laughs> so, so, so carry on your, your, your bullish on equities, 20% returns. Um, look, the, the election is behind us. Do we need to even talk about it? Is, is it probably just worth pivoting right to vaccination and the e- economic reopening versus the stay-at-home COVID, you know, growth tech trade?
2: Mm -hmm. So I think we need to talk about as we entered the election and where we were. I think it's always important for investors to understand that as much as you focus on a binary thing, like who is going to be president and what policies will be enacted, it's really important to always remember that the equity market can be a discounting mechanism. So there were a bunch of ways to think about that statistically as we entered the election and where we still sit So uncertainty is something you can actually measure through time, through newsletters and sort of natural language processing scrapes. And there's a great series done by, I think at Stanford and University of Chicago, that showed, no surprise, that there were very, very high levels of uncertainty as we approached the end of the year. We still reside there with the sort of surge in our, let's call it, third wave of COVID cases. I think the important thing for equity investors to understand is that's usually the point where you actually have the best odds for future returns and the highest returns. But to get those, you actually have to put up with the most volatility. And that's what you have seen, and I think that that's what you're likely to continue to see as we play out 2021 in this very uncertain environment.
0: Um, Denise. Again, I, I'm trying to lead my clients, and, and they're following. I'm leading them to, to, to do exactly what you're alluding to, um, take on more equity risk because that's where you're going to be able to make money. In other words, buy stocks over bonds. Uh, now, bonds historically are the safe haven. They they tend to move up and down less, and therefore when markets go down, they tend to act as a buffer to your net worth. Um, but when interest rates are at such Minuscule levels, uh, bonds all of a sudden become very risky. When interest, when not if, when interest rates go up, bonds go down. Um, so Denise, again, let, let us speak about the bond market. Um, how risky do you think the bond market is for twenty twenty one? Because again, twenty twenty bonds again made money. Rates went lower, bonds continue to right. go higher. Uh, so, what's your call for next year with respect to bonds, and what kind of weighting should a balanced investor uh, take on in in the debt market
2: that's right i mean well back to sort of credit spreads as they're signaling for an asset allocator i would say that if 2021 plays out as we sort of laid out with the vaccine causing a higher potential of acceleration in gdp and job growth that causes sort of 90 percent odds for credit spreads to further narrow which makes it very likely that equities continue to beat bonds for the entirety of twenty twenty one. But I think you hit on a really key point, which is not necessarily just returns for bondholders, but it's the volatility of those returns. The lower that interest rates are potentially, the higher the volatility that you will be perceived that you will see. So I think that even on a risk adjusted basis, you could almost say now relative to history, equities are that much more advantaged as we approach the next year.
0: Yeah. Well, again, I continue to uh, encourage my clients buy quality businesses if you want to make a return, uh, and it just, and perhaps again. Uh, when markets go down in, in a volatile environment, everything becomes correlated to one, so everything goes down. But those governments are the ones that should hold. Now, again, the way to make money in governments in a falling equity market is by buying the long bond, that's the 30-year bond. But again, I mean, the, the, the risk on the 30-year bond uh, is, is significant. And again, if, if interest rates move 1%, that, that 30-year bond could fall, what, to mean some 15 to 18%? I would, I would, I would uh, mathematically fair. calculate now. So not a good risk-reward scenario. Uh, friends, if you're just tuning in to Hi-Fi Radio, a show about money, uh, I'm delighted to have one of Wall Street's finest um, uh, strategists join us this evening. Uh, her name is Denise Chisholm, uh, and she's an absolute uh, genius and delight to uh, have with us today she's sharing with us her ideas looking into 2021 uh some money making ideas i must say and some risk management ideas you want to stay tuned to the show more of it
1: right after this let's take a break but after wolf and jack will continue their in-depth discussion about money you're listening to hi-fi radio from global news radio 640
0: toronto that's what the show is all about my friends money. Sci fi Radio. I am Wolfgang Klein. I'm a hobbyist when it comes to radio. I'm a professional when it comes to money management. Um, and as a pro, I hang out with people smarter than I, which isn't actually that hard to find. Um, but man, I've come up with a doozy today. Denise Chisholm, uh, she's a, uh, a sector strategist with Fidelity. Fidelity is one of the world's largest asset managers. Jack and I use Fidelity and many of our clients' portfolios, and they do an amazing job. They think differently. Um, They they have conviction. And, you know, it's incredible. uh, Fidelity has such clout on Wall Street. Um, that companies come to Fidelity for presentations, uh, whereas smaller boutique shops, they have to go to the companies to get in front of the CFO and CEO. But not Fidelity, nope. They are a, well, we'll call them a mecca. And it's so located in Boston. Um, great city. Don't have been to Boston, but uh, when the world reopens, I do encourage you to see that beautiful, beautiful American city. And yeah, no, I, I commend you, Denise, for, for uh, being a Bostoner. And, um, tell me something you're working from home. Um, do you miss going to the office? How's the strategist the sector strategist hanging out uh, uh, working from home?
2: There are pluses and minuses to it. I have to say, I don't miss my commute. I mean, Boston is a lovely city, and you all should come and visit. but the public transportation isn't the best, nor is the traffic. so getting a bunch of hours back in my day has been a positive, but I will say that I definitely miss the office camaraderie and being able to stop by people's offices more easily and actually talking to people face-to-face. So that is definitely a miss for
3: me.
0: I'm just curious, anecdotally, do you think it's a net positive, net neutral, or slight negative, this whole work-at-home thing uh, versus, you know, going into the office? I'm, I'm, it's running through my mind as well because I'm totally on side with you. I miss seeing Jack I, I, I miss uh, speaking with my colleagues and bouncing ideas off them face to face. I miss randomly walking up and down Bay Street and King and Queen Street and, and seeing again colleagues and just sharing ideas with them. But I am saving time and, in many ways, my body is taking less of a beat, having to drive my car and park my car and you know uh, do all that unpleasant stuff, eh?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's tough to, to know for entirety of people because it's such a different range of outcomes depending on your age or your demographic or your setup at home. So to the extent that, you know, you have little kids around, that creates a real problem for being able to work efficiently and when you're very young i mean that creates sort of a very isolated environment i think what you find is it's easier for people like me who are older who have older kids who have an easier setup at home where there's more pluses but i think it's really a wide range of outcomes per individuals and i think it's anybody's guess how how much the net effect is
0: so denise we're looking into 2021 again friends if you just turned the into High fi radio show about money uh, Denise Chisholm is a strategist, a sector strategist with Fidelity, here to help me and also to help you uh, think about next year and how you're going to uh, invest your money and remain invested with your money. Um, Denise, again, in doing my work, I, I had a, a good conference call yesterday with uh, our other strategist, Martin LaBerge. Uh, again, Tony Dwyer is going to be coming out the show later. Um, but again, the work that I'm concluding is uh, emerging markets are, are, are beginning to see interest. China continues to, I think, lead emerging markets out of the funk and perhaps as a key catalyst and continues to support the North American market. Uh, commodities, again, I'm renovating a house right now. <laughs> I keep saying each and every week, cedar shakes have gone up about 35 to 50 percent. There's shortage mm-hmm. of lumber. Uh, adhesives have doubled in price. Insulation's worth more money. Trade people are hard to come by. Uh, so the, COVID-19 has been a year where services, I think, have continued to perform, but stuffed goods have gotten stuck in shutdowns, bottlenecks, border crossing, delays, etc. The theme seems to be with these bottlenecks and pent-up demand, next year will be the year of products. Not services, again, software as a service, quote unquote, has done well this year, anything technology software-wise very well. But next year is going to be a different theme. And so I'm starting to reposition portfolios a little bit. I'm buying a little bit of base metals. I'm buying a little bit of China. I'm buying a little emerging markets. And I'm trimming the likes of a little Moody's, trimming a little Microsoft, trimming some Danaher, uh, trimming some of the more defensive names and predictable names. I'm trying to get some cyclicality into my portfolio. Uh, Denise, do you think I'm on the right track? I've just begun this journey for 2021. Reposition. Do you think I'm on the right track? Can you add, uh, please, your thoughts to what you would advise people to do and myself?
2: No, I think you're you're talking you're preaching to the choir here. I think if you ever want to look at my research, you can actually find it online, fidelity.com slash QSU. I do a quarterly sector update that exactly takes you through the base case for cyclicality this year and as we approach 2021. But I do think so let's let's break it down in terms of the haves and have nots. And then the potential recovery plays and what might happen to the market, which would be different than 2020. So I think that there are a lot of investors thinking that this absolutely has to be a binary decision, mainly around technology, partly because of the growth versus value play, partly because technology has outperformed really by, I think, 70 percentage points over the last seven years, which is pretty rare for a sector to do. So there's certainly been a lot of bubble intrigue around the technology sector. But it's really interesting what you find that 2009, which was the last recession that we experienced as investors, was really the exception, not the rule. Into that recessionary stock market trough, what you saw was 90 percent of sectors actually changed their outperformance sign. So if you, as a portfolio manager, wanted to outperform on the other side of that recovery play, you had to sell everything that you owned going in and buy everything you didn't own going out. And that is actually more rare than not. What you've seen play out this year is actually more typical. When you look back through recessions, you usually only see 30 to 50% of sectors actually change their outperformance sign. And you see one to three sectors every recession that outperforms the six months going into a recession, the six months headed into that recessionary stock market trough, and the six to 12 months coming out. So I think technology might actually be a solid risk reward still at these levels. To your point, I think it might – the expense might come – From the classic defensive sectors like consumer staples like utilities which not only have fundamental headwinds but the valuation that has been predictive is trailing earnings is still expensive and the forward earnings that they are cheap on is usually leads you to lower odds of outperformance because usually you get cheap when the e for the market is wrong so into that earnings recovery which we're likely headed into for 2021 usually energy, utilities, let's call real estate, and some segments of healthcare tend to struggle. And the cyclicality in technology may remain. And then maybe there's more to join the fray that are more classic recovery plays like energy and industrials.
0: So let's this, this, this stick to the commodity landscape for, for a moment, if we may. Uh, and again, if you're just joining the show, Denise Chisholm. Uh, she's a sector strategist with Fidelity, one of the smartest minds in America, one of the smartest minds on Wall Street. It's a delight and a privilege uh, to be spending time with Denise Chisholm uh, this evening. Uh, Denise, uh commodity landscape made up really of two camps. Uh, you have metals and mining, and you have oil and gas. Uh, can you speak to those 2 mm-hmm. subsectors of the commodity landscape, and how would you want to be positioned within each?
2: Mm -hmm. Sure. Oil and gas actually looks more interesting to me from the data. Um, When I look, it's more like a wealth of evidence approach where, again, I do historical probability analysis. So the factors line up much more crisply and critically for energy than they do for even different segments in materials for me. So let me tell you a little bit about the energy odds that I actually evaluate Typically, there are really two times in history where you, as an energy investor, want to be overweight. One is when you're in the bottom decile in terms of valuation, uh, which we never got to. As much as we were cheap on asset value for the bulk of the cycle, we never got there. The energy sector never got there on any earnings-based measure or free cash flow. In the database that I have going back to 1962, it was basically middling. The second time when you really want to look at the energy sector is when you have demand declines. And those odds that are about 80% once you see a sales acceleration, which might be a decent bet given a vaccine heading into 2021, once you see that sales acceleration, those odds stick. 80%, regardless of the fact that fundamentals deteriorate, that inventories continue to rise. And I think that there's a sweet spot within the sector, which has really been plagued by overspending over the course of the last, let's call it, decade. Now that the energy sector overall is out of that very high CapEx relative to sales, they've gotten much more conservative on their capital spending specifically in the energy service sector. So that's the part of energy that is attractive based on overall valuation. It's actually the cheapest it's ever been on free cash flow since 1980. And again, that has been one of the key drivers offered you over 70% odds. And it's the area, given that energy is so dislocated and so sort of down and out from an investment perspective, it's the cheapest on any asset value, which tends to work. So that sort of trifecta of signals that I see across energy, I don't see in other sectors like materials. And I think it's a unique setup um, that I'm seeing sort of a lot of odds as we approach 2021 for that to be a strong recovery play.
0: That's very brilliant, uh, Denise. So, again, I want you to repeat, you you, you said energy becomes most attractive when you get into an environment where demand is going down highly counterintuitive statement (laughs) can you extrapolate please on that
2: yeah i mean i think it happens so much and in some ways that's why i use historical probabilities as a key part of my process because i think if you're an investor that would be intuitively the last time you would want to look fundamentals are terrible this is awful but that's actually when the market has often discounted the most bad news. What you find is, in energy is this sort of odd thing where even though earnings or operating margins or returns or any fundamental factor might get worse, what you have is a valuation expansion as the market looks through to the recovery based on sales or earnings as it comes. So the market actually moves ahead of the fundamentals in recessionary declines.
0: Unbelievable. It's absolutely brilliant. Let's speak about another sector that's been so unloved in America uh, that I remain steadfast in, and I don't have a big position, and that is those cheap U.S. banks. Um, how do you feel about the U.S. banks uh, for 2021?
2: Yeah, in some ways, they're, they're similar to energy in the fact that valuation, I think most regional banks are actually on a median basis now below book. So below book value has historically been a good time to actually look at the sector and look at the stocks. And I think that, again, going back to that sort of reacceleration or a steadier acceleration in 2021, I think that that's the time when you can see sectors and industries like banks work. In fact, if you had to pick a sector that was most tied to any profit recovery, which we're likely to see, again, it would be U.S. financials
0: yeah so I'm going to stick with that trade It's interesting. I was just digging into digging in further to uh, Citigroup, a name I've owned for a number of years and it it was good, it was a good exercise because it reminded me that Citigroup has a lot of exposure to emerging markets, and emerging markets are set to participate in this global recovery. uh We've got about another minute left here, Denise. Can you speak about emerging markets and 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 or China? I guess you can't avoid emerging markets when you're speaking about China, but how relevant is China and emerging markets? in your thesis for next year?
2: No, it's funny. It's not as relevant as you might expect. So again, I sort of look at the data and how it lines up. uh, And what I see is a middling valuation for emerging markets on a relative basis versus the U.S. um, And I see declining returns and operating margins cycle to cycle. So I think it's important to remember that this is not the emerging markets of the early aughts. Uh, and the, that growth will not likely be there, nor will be the returns. And I don't see the valuation differential pricing that potential in at this point.
0: Uh, so if you, if you were to bet on one country, don't be biased now, and I don't think you will be, um, <laughs> bet on one country uh, for next year, uh, what's it going to be?
2: No, I think it would be the United States, given that it has the best chance for relative earnings growth and off the equity risk premium that is still solid.
0: Well, you know, it continues to outperform the world. It has basically for the last eight or nine years. Um, Fascinating, fascinating discussion. Uh, Denise Chisholm, uh, sector strategist with Fidelity. Uh, I want to wish you a Merry Christmas and that you be safe in Boston. And uh, I continue to uh, appreciate any time that you uh, give to Jack and I. have just done a great job. So all the best to you. Uh, Tony Dwyer is going to join us next. Uh, Canaccord's very own chief uh, strategist, uh, frequent guest on the show. We're looking forward to spending a uh, little time with a good buddy. He's going to give you some really, really good ideas, a lot of fun. Stay tuned.
1: Don't go anywhere. There's more great show after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. Frankie
0: meets Tony Dwyer. Tony Dwyer, I chief to strategist, of um a New Wall Street York, man, certainly New in New New spirit. New York, uh, Tony, thank you for spending time with us. When's the last time you put your
3: foot on Wall Street? I was in New York maybe um, two months ago.
0: Wow. Wow. Are you up at the cottage? Right now? No, I'm in New Jersey. Tony, the world is going to be very exciting when, when 5G uh, becomes adopted. Uh, I, I think it's going to be a big surprise to many a folk. Um, but uh, I do digress. Tony, thank you for spending time with us. Um, again, you're you're so instrumental in uh, my success and, and, therefore, my client's success. And I can't thank you enough for all of your time this year. Once again, my friend, uh, again, I got my growth clients up. 17% on the year. My balanced clients are up nine, nine percent. Conservative clients who, you know, trying to beat a T-bill return are up like seven percent. So uh I'd have to say we nailed it. The problem I face right now in the month of December, and when I have a good year, I become nervous. I get nervous because I know next year will be a very different year. And again, we got a vaccine coming to the world, thank goodness. Uh, apparently the United Kingdom is going to begin uh, vaccinating its citizens, I think, as soon as next week. Uh, the the market, boy, oh, boy, what, what a year, what a recovery. Who would have thought that the market would make new highs coming out of COVID within the same year that we shut the economy down? But thanks to the Fed the central bank, that's what happened. Uh, but I think change is afoot. Uh, again, just speaking with Denise Chisholm, Tony, uh, from Fidelity, and she agrees. I spoke with the other strategist, Martin Reburg yesterday. He gave me a few ideas. So, Tony, in your view, in your opinion, again, you're a data miner, uh, so it's all about the data with you and the facts with you. Uh, what do you think we have in sport 2021?
3: Well, I think we have an extraordinary macroeconomic backdrop. Denise is a good friend of mine, as, of course, Martin is. Um, it's, a, it's a really terrific backdrop of excess liquidity, and a synchronized global recovery. And let me let me very briefly explain what that means. It sounds so so economicish. Excess um, liquidity means that you take if you look at the economy, and you take the difference between the money ge- that's being generated, the available money to spend. So any money that a household could spend or a corporation can spend. Um, so it's money supply plus stock and bond mutual funds and ETFs. So if we take all that money that's readily available. And you compare that against what is being actually used for economic growth. That's what uh, real liquidity is. And we have an ex- a level of excess real liquidity, a historic amount of money availability that's not even yet being put to work in economic activity, but it has begun. So we have all that money, and we have a global economy that all shut down at the same time. And guess what, Wolfgang? They're all beginning to recover at the same time as well. So we have the combination of excess liquidity and synchronized global recovery. Really, especially once the vaccines get put in place next year, you have the makings for really an economic potential boom.
0: Tony, we had, again, the market is at an all-time high. The market, we all know, is no longer cheap. Uh, Many would argue it's above fair value, but we always want to put that in the context of other things because the the value does does not operate or live within a bubble. It it is a relative concept, and it's always relative to the alternative for your money and really you have two places for your money you can be an owner or a lender the lenders called debt and the owner it's called equity otherwise known as stock um, I don't think there's a big race to be buying debt instruments in this environment uh, so the money's going go to go the equity market okay we'll conclude on that but the question is valuation how much further can this market go in terms of PE ratios uh, and valuation Tony
3: with the Fed and the zero interest rate policy, it can get more extreme. So let me let me put it to you this way. I looked at prior cycles. In the last cycle, high yield debt, the, the, the high yield debt was trading at the Moody's BAA index, which represents the more risky category of, of investment grade debt. It's like it's almost high yield debt. So. It was overvalued at 6% last cycle relative to its prior cycle. So when you have so much money sloshing around, it's very difficult to say the market's overvalued because it can become more overvalued. So that's why we don't even publish an S&P 500 target anymore because it's a total guessing game that's not meaningful. What the the question should be is are we in an environment that can – have multiple expansion or PE multiple expansion or contraction. And we're still in an environment because of the Fed that can have a PE multiple expansion. You
0: know, it's funny. It's a, you're bringing back memories of 20 years ago
3: for me, Tony. I began
0: on Bay Street um, just after the tech wreck. And I remember speaking to my, my uh, general manager at the time, Paul Sonnell was his name. I said, why is the market falling? Because so I began in a falling market. And he said, oh, it's simple. We're having a multiple contraction. And I scratch my head and I looked at what? Oh, yeah, PE multiples are contracting. And it's like, oh. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. And the market PE, when I began this business, was well over 30, thanks to tech running its course. And it worked its way down to about nine uh, during and, and after the financial crises. Uh, so uh, now we're going through what's called a multiple expansion, where PE multiples have been rising for the better part of, I guess, a decade, eh, Tony? And you think they're going to continue to uh, expand. The question is, how, uh, where do you think the P.E. stops? How high does it go for the broad market?
3: See, I, I think, but I think we have to differentiate and define what is the market? If you're talking about the the top five or six companies that make up so much of the index, I don't think there will be a multiple expansion there. If you talk about everything else, I think there could be. So you could actually see a market where the multiple, an S&P 500, where the P.E. stays around where it is, but you get significant gains underneath those top names that have driven that valuation expansion.
0: Yeah, very fascinating. I was going through some bespoke work over the last couple of days. And just to see the concentration of um, uh, wealth within a handful of names. In other words, I think uh, one or two or five S&P 500 companies represent the entire valuation of the entire Russell Small Cap Index. So there is certainly, I'll use the word, bifurcation um, between the market. we got a, a whole, a, a few dominant players, and I mean significantly dominant players. And then on the other end of the tail, you have a lot of periphery, smaller names. But interesting in the small cap space. Look, we're going to commercial break. I do want to talk about smaller companies. I want to talk further with Tony about his ideas looking into next year. We're going to talk about oil, the U.S. dollar, gold, maybe even Bitcoin made a new high this week. I don't have any. I don't remember to buy any, but... All in due course. Stay tuned, more show right after this. Money.
1: Listen, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, money. more money talk. You're listening to Hi Fi Radio from Global News Radio 640 Toronto. It was Christmas Eve, babe, in the drunk tank. An old man said to me, Ah, she's a beauty, isn't she?
0: It is December, so I have to play a little Christmas 10 and there's a fairy tales of New York, and we've got a great New Yorker on the line, Mr. Tony Dwyer, uh can course, very own uh, highly coveted uh, jazz strategist. Uh, Tony, I can't thank you enough, man. You've been such a good friend for the last 10 years. You've helped me help my clients. And uh well, I continue to need your services to help me into next year. You know, I'm a big believer that, you know, every year is different and there is this whole change that seems to take place uh, you know, December, January for repositioning our portfolio. So I'm trying my best to do a little preemptive work uh, early in the month so I don't get caught uh chasing. I wanna sort of be in front of uh the change coming at us next year. So what are the types of change do you think we are going to see in sectors and the market
3: uh, as 2021 unfolds? Winners and losers, Tony. Okay. Uh, first off, uh, I want to make sure I wish you and all the um, listeners of the program a very happy holiday season and safe and healthy one, especially uh, given all the craziness in, um, and uh, health care fear with the COVID-19. So, so you've done a great job, and we're, we're partners, and that's a great, that's a great thing. Um, I don't think there's going to be any difference in the recent trend for what's going to happen in 2021. Um, we've got, uh, again, like I said earlier in the show, this, this excess liquidity coupled with a synchronized global recovery is not something that resolves itself in 15 minutes. In other words, the economy should begin to really, especially once the vaccines come out globally, the economy should really start to ramp. And I think that's what – so the cyclicals, the emerging markets, the, um, the higher risk categories of investment do well when you have a very easy monetary backdrop, meaning the Fed and the global central banks, coupled with – or low interest rates, coupled with expansion. Um, so that's been our theme over the last few months. It, it seems to be working out pretty well, and I don't see any reason to change it in 2021.
0: Yeah, that's good, Tony, because that's exactly how I began the beginning of the show. and asked Denise the same question. How do you feel about emerging markets? How do you feel about commodities? Which I want to stop right there. Commodities, Tony. Uh, there's two main buckets. There is base metals, where you make stuff. You know, so you can make cars, and you can make wire, and you can make, oh, I don't know. I need, I need to, by the way, some cedar shakes. But that's a whole other category coming from BC. Sure, on cedar, cedar shakes. Uh, but then you got oil, um, cheap oil. Uh, So uh, how do you feel about those two sectors or subsectors, oil versus metals and mining?
3: I I think they should do well. Wolf, they've already done well recently, and I think they're going to continue to do well. Um, And again, it's not based on a guess. It's not based on um, underperformance. It's that that happened coming off the low when the top technology stay-at-home stocks did the best. It is based off of exactly what the data suggests. When the economy is growing, you want to buy those areas that are exposed to a growing economy. When the economy is at risk and everybody's staying at home, you want to buy those stocks that you know are stay at home. That theme has been played out. Now it's time to go go in the different direction. What happens when the economy really begins to grow and you have all that pent up demand for maybe not for goods that you buy on on some of the online uh, platforms, but stuff that has to be made in a factory? There's a pen up demand and a backlog
0: there. Well, Tony, I, I, I bought a new house, and I'm, I keep speaking about the house I bought, but I bought a fixer-upper. I tend to lean that way. That's just who I am. I don't know. I'm a glutton for punishment. Um, I, I am purchasing a, a, a sub zero fridge, a beautiful fridge, made in America, delayed. I won't see that puppy. If I'm lucky, the end of the year, more likely in January. I need a new exhaust fan. Uh, for my kitchen, it doesn't have enough power on it, so I'm getting a more, more BTU or I don't know more more something, <laughs> and it's made in America. I won't see that exhaust fan for about three weeks. Um, uh, the, 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 the dishwasher got that in about two weeks. Not bad. A washer and dryer. We're 60 days in the wait on that puppy. I got a a notice from a roofing company, and they said, hey, well, can you uh, send us a $20,000 deposit for your roof that we're going to do next year so we can buy the shingles now? Warehouse them and then next spring we can put the roof on. I said, well, it'll probably be next fall because the permit office is backed is backed up. It's going to take me four and a half five months to get a permit. Everything I'm seeing, Tony, ties into what you're saying. Uh, There is bottlenecks in the system. There's pent up demand. There is no deals. Hence, there's inflation brewing. so again, let's let go back to sectors for next year. Uh, give me your number one sector, number two, and number three sector based on what we're just talking about.
3: Well, I don't. I'm not going to rank them, Wolf. But I'll tell you the one thing you can weight them. It's financials, materials, industrials, energy, and consumer discretionary, meaning consumer-based products. That's not necessarily the mega cap, you know, online names. So it, again, if, if if it can be produced economically and we're in an aggressive growth environment, those are the areas that typically should outperform, especially with a Fed that's on the sidelines.
0: Yeah, and again, everything you're speaking to tends to, and again, broad stroke, Tony, goods over
3: services. Does that make sense? That's exactly right. That's it. Services, there's such things as industrial services, too. And even from the technology, not every stock is a mega cap software name. So there's technology areas that can do as well, can do well in addition to that.
0: And the irony is it's funny because consumer discretionary has companies like Apple in it. I think even Amazon is now consumer discretionary. Uh, So is that tech is discretionary? I don't know. I'm wired up with Apple. I continue to be long the Apple stock. I think it's just a quality name. But it gets down to Tony. You know, I continuously want to buy leaders in the space. I want to buy quality businesses. I focus on brands. I want a strong balance sheet. I want runway for my ideas, Um, but, again, it's the month of December, so a little ghetto stuff that may not work as well next year and overweight stuff that will work a little better next year. Uh, Finally, uh, technology, uh, are you underweight? Is it called the Underweight Technology Broad
3: Strokes? No, I I wouldn't be underweight technology. I would be underweight mega-cap stay-at-home companies. In other words, not just technology. People forget that some of the biggest names that people – Lump in with technology are now in the consumer discretionary. Um, mm-hmm. we are in the um, in the com- communication services. So no, it, I, I wouldn't underweight technology. I would underweight the mega cap stay-at-home beneficiaries that have already had yeah. explosive a move mobile. Big move, yeah, yeah. I sold Docu I, I made a
0: lot of money owning DocuSign, so I, I took that. I took that off the table. Uh, one of which you all a great weekend, Tony Dwyer, chief strategist with Canaccord Genuity, live from Wall Street, sort of. Uh, I can't thank you enough, pal. I want to each and every one of you. a Great weekend, Jack. You're a mess. Uh, any questions, WolfgangKlein.com. You stay safe. Be healthy. Be wealthy. Be wise. Stay tuned each and every Saturday. Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.